Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. They consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. Hi, my name is Carrie Seaburn, professional engineer, and this is Unstruct. Unstruct is the podcast where we share the stories from within your walls to help you understand how they stand today. Hello, and welcome back to Unstruct. In this episode, I sit down with Alexis Vitel, who is the team carbon unit director at KLNA Engineers and Builders in Golden, Colorado. And we talk about the Boulder Community Hospital deconstruction project. The premise of this episode and Alexis's area of expertise is deconstruction and reuse of structural elements. So we talk about the Boulder Community Hospital and how it was strategically deconstructed and many of those materials, many of those structural elements then were reused in the construction of a new fire station in Boulder, Colorado. So kind of the cool thing about KLNA is they have this team carbon unit where they are focusing on sustainability and embodied carbon. And this team is comprised of structural engineers. So they are getting involved at the deconstruction phase of a project and then many times carrying that through into construction of a new project. So as you can imagine, one of the main difficult pieces of this is cataloging and inventorying what is available and determining its structural strength and integrity. So many times when a building is demoed, there are structural elements in there that are still structurally sufficient. So the structural integrity of these pieces are many times still intact such that they can be reused in a new project. And it's a very sustainable way 
to limit that carbon footprint. Because like we've talked about in several previous episodes, the construction industry contributes to about 40% of the carbon emissions. So anything and any ways that we can mitigate that is very useful and beneficial. So it's kind of cool. Alexis actually grew up in Colorado. Her family homesteaded in Colorado. And she is also an avid supporter of the outdoors, doing many things outside. So it's kind of a full circle thing where she uses the space, her family, her relatives, her heritage is from Colorado as well. And she is now kind of protecting those resources, those natural resources for future generations. So kind of a really cool thing. I really got into the documentation and the cataloging of these specific elements and how that can be done and how they can actually be reused. So very fascinating stuff. It really is kind of a new thing as far as I know and as far as Alexis was aware of something that's kind of new that's being done. So it is very intriguing and interesting to think of where this sector can go in the coming years. So it really is kind of like a secondhand shopping resource or a great opportunity for promoting sustainability and for being sustainable in our structural designs. So With that, I will hand it over to Alexis. Thanks for being here, Alexis. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Okay. Well, maybe if you could just start by giving us just a little bit of background in Embodied Carbon. So just a little background would be super helpful, I think, before we get into the project. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to throw some stats at you as well. So get ready. So embodied carbon is the carbon emissions associated with materials themselves. So this goes from raw material extraction to manufacturing of the materials, you know, packaging them, transporting them. And then, you know, in the context of the building industry, installing and constructing them. And then, you know, it's also important to consider what happens at end of life. So recycle or reuse landfill. So buildings themselves account for about 40% of global greenhouse gas emissions, which is mind-blowing, in my opinion. Um, Kind of the breakdown of that is about 10% of that is embodied carbon, and about 30% is operational. Um, But what's important to understand with buildings is that on day one, about 100% of your emissions are going to be embodied carbon emissions. So it is really important that, you know, we as an industry and especially we as structural engineers, you know, address this and and own it and really kind of understand it. The majority of embodied carbon in a building itself is going to exist within the structure and enclosure. And so that's really why, you know, structural engineers have an important role to play. You know, ultimately, we're the ones specifying those materials. And so, you know, I think it's important that we own that and, again, understand it. We understand the nuances of how we affect that, how we affect material volumes and how we can even affect a system selection and things like that. I guess a few other kind of helpful things for this conversation in regards to embodied carbon are the impacts of steel itself. So steel has about five to nine percent of the global greenhouse gas impacts, which, again, very significant. If we're talking domestic, it's about two percent impact. So smaller, but still significant for sure. 
And the reason why reuse, like true reuse, not recycling is effective is that majority of your embodied carbon impacts actually truly happen in kind of that manufacturing, in those manufacturing stages. And so when you directly reuse something versus recycling, you're essentially avoiding, you know, majority of those embodied carbon impacts. So again, that's kind of the, why the case is made for material reuse. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, that, that's super fascinating. To reiterate, I think you said 40% of carbon emissions come from building construction, right? Or from the building construction industry. So manufacturing, construction, and then life cycle. Exactly. Okay, so let's talk about this project a little bit, because like we were talking about, this is a reuse project. So kind of eliminating that manufacturing side of the picture, I guess. Can you just give us a little bit of an overview of kind of the scope of this project? Yeah, so I'm actually going to talk about kind of two separate projects. So one is kind of the steel deconstruction and stockpiling aspect. And then the other project I'll mention is a new construction project that used some of the steel. So the Boulder Community Hospital was a decommissioned hospital you know, in the city of Boulder, if you're familiar with the area, it's at Broadway and Balsam. So the city owned about a nine acre site. The existing building was originally constructed in 1957, and then it actually went through about nine major additions and then multiple renovations. So it honestly was quite like the hodgepodge of, you know, existing buildings and different structural systems and orientations of systems, the majority of it was concrete construction. And so, you know, concrete columns, concrete flat plate, concrete cores. And then there were a few areas that were steel framing systems. And so that's what I'm going to talk about today. So there were two, again, kind of two different areas that I'll, I'll kind of describe here now. And we recovered virtually all of the structural steel from the building. So wide flange and HSS, we did not recover steel joists. So those were kind of the only structural members that were recycled instead of reused. So kind of collectively with that, we recovered exactly 536 pieces of steel, which was over 160 tons. So again, there were kind of two different areas of the building. One I'll refer to as Source A. So this was about a 20,000 square foot building, three stories. The structural system for it was wide flange, steel framing, steel joists, composite concrete deck, and you know steel deck at the roof. I also want to make the point that the steel itself was not composite. So we didn't have shear studs, you know, wasn't kind of interlocked with that concrete deck. As I mentioned before, we did not actually recover the joists themselves. And with source A, we had existing drawings prior to deconstruction. So that area we actually inventoried before we took it down. The other area I'll call source B, that was about a 30,000 square foot area, but single story. So super simple construction. It was all wide flange and HSS framing, and then just a steel roof deck. That area we did not have existing drawings for, and so we actually inventoried after deconstruction. That entire development that the city owns, they are going to redevelop it. So that was kind of the whole instigation of demolition and deconstruction of this building. So it will eventually get redeveloped into affordable housing, and then it'll also serve as somewhat of a municipal hub 
for kind of city offices and different city services. And then kind of switching gears to the new construction project, Kilene is an engineer of record on Fire Station 3. So this is a fire station in the city of Boulder. And that project used about 89 pieces from the stockpile and ended up being about 25% of the weight of, of the stockpile that we recovered. And that's, you know, kind of traditional steel framing for a fire station. Most of those pieces were used in the apparatus bay framing as well as mechanical screens. Okay, so a couple of questions. So the owner is the same for both projects. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. So both are owned by the city of Boulder. Yes. Okay. And when did the owner decide that they were going to reuse these members? Or when were you brought in to carefully deconstruct? Because my guess is that the deconstruction of something that's going to be reused is much, much different than the like a typical building demo. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and I think it's important to acknowledge kind of the terminology of demolition versus deconstruction, right? Very, very fundamentally different things. Traditionally, buildings kind of get knocked down and then the materials will be separated and again, kind of sent to recycling or landfill. Whereas deconstruction means you gently and thoughtfully deconstruct the building and it's really the inverse of construction right so the intention is to maintain the integrity of those materials as they're being pulled down so this is probably like my favorite part of the project is just kind of the the entire story around it so the city of boulder themselves have really strong circular economy objectives so they actually commissioned a really interesting report by Metabolic, I believe it was in 2019, that kind of outlined a pathway for the city itself to have a true circular economy and zero waste economy by 2025. So they are very serious about this. They also passed a deconstruction ordinance in 2020 that requires buildings that are being you know demolished or deconstructed 75 percent of the weight of that building has to be recycled or reused so essentially landfill diversion is the goal of that and then you know when they're looking at this existing hospital they had you know, they knew that they wanted to redevelop the site and, you know, looking at the building itself, it wasn't able to serve that function, right? What they wanted the end use to be like that building wasn't going to wasn't going to serve them. And so there's actually a few areas of the building that they are maintaining. They are renovating into city offices, but majority of it, you know, was determined to be the best case was to be deconstructed. I think it's also interesting that buildings often when they are demolished, it's really not because they no longer serve us structurally or they're in deterioration, right? It's usually because we no longer see value in them. They don't serve us aesthetically or they don't serve us functionally. And so then they're decommissioned, right? And so, you know, when we look at our existing building stock, a lot of those materials are very functional, right? They still hold their value in that sense. And so I think that's just, you know, a really interesting point in interesting for our industry to, again, kind of rethink about the value of our existing building stock. So anyways, that that's kind of the story of Boulder's thinking in this and thinking in this project. So we got pulled in late 2020. At that time, they were in the middle of deconstructing all of the interiors of this building. So Chris Kendall, a principal at KLNA, was a principal of 
Fire Station 3. He heard that they were deconstructing this, and he actually ended up on a site walk of the project with city officials. And I love Chris for this. He was walking and, you know, looked and said, okay, well, why can't we use the steel for Fire Station 3? He understood they had circular economy objectives. He understood their sustainability goals. And so, again, he was just like, well, why don't we use the steel for, for our new design? And so he pulled Team Carbon into the conversation. We actually got pulled in originally for life cycle assessment scope. And so, again, kind of the city with all of these sustainability objectives needed to justify that value to their stakeholders, right? So they wanted to say, this is how much embodied carbon we are saving or avoiding for both that development, but also new construction projects. So they wanted to be able to tell, you know, this like bigger story. And so Team Carbon at the time, we had been talking internally about material reuse, but really just theoretically. We were really, really interested in it. We really saw that as an avenue for embodied carbon reductions. But we were actually thinking about it more in the context of deconstruction. So how do we design our buildings so that they can be deconstructed in, you know, 50 to 100 years? And so when we kind of started to meet with the city, we really just started kind of daydreaming and brainstorming about, can we do this, right? Like, should we use these pieces on Fire Station 3? Can we, you know, what would that look like? And, you know, we really kind of pushed each other in these conversations and, and again, just kind of egged each other on, really. We were primarily talking with Michelle Crane, who is the facilities chief architect at the city of Boulder. And, you know, over the course of a few months of discussions, really, you know, we really earned each other's trust. And because we had shared values and we had shared intentions with a potential stockpile, we definitely didn't think that we would be the ones to go through this process of stockpiling and that would actually be our scope. So again, we were just kind of going back and forth about the possibilities and and can we say yes and should we say yes to this? And really, you know, we wanted to achieve this not just for ourselves, like individually or for our companies, but we both very much agreed on the importance of illustrating this for the industry, right? Like this was an opportunity to actually execute on like true, true material reuse, direct reuse and, you know, structural steel being reused as structural steel, right? Not kind of like downgraded and reused in a different way. It just became very clear to us that it was like, okay, we, we can do this and and we think that we should do this. And, you know, as I mentioned before, it was really important that we justified the feasibility of this to the city stakeholders and justified, you know, the actual kind of financial value of this. And so kind of the first thing that we started with, again, before we were scoped out at all to actually manage the stockpile, we at KLNA developed a document that was titled Practical Considerations for a Steel Reuse Enterprise. So it's essentially just, you know, kind of high level framework about how would you go about this and like what would the challenges be for any entity to truly create like an at scale stockpile. And then that really helped make the case. And then from there, we actually created the inventory for source A. So as I mentioned, they we had existing drawings for that. So we, we created an itemized inventory list of source A based on the existing drawings. By doing that, again, we were kind of making the case 
that we had an end use for this deal. So we inventoried that so then the Fire Station 3 design team could look at that inventory and pick their actual pieces that they wanted to use and claim those at that point. And again, kind of justify like, does it actually make sense to, to deconstruct and recover these pieces and how much can actually be used on Fire Station 3? In 2020 was kind of all about creating documentation, creating more framework and really kind of creating the process and details around how we would actually go about this and what would be the step-by-step process from going from, you know, pulling it out of the building to documenting that and then implementing into a new project. And then it wasn't until actually earlier this year in January that we actually did the deconstruction of this deal. And then we just completed that about a month ago. Okay. Yeah. And like, as you're talking, like the framework seems like it would be so important because it is so different than, you know, like I'm thinking, you know, typical process, you're designing a building and you're pulling down from a catalog of whatever size, or you're saying design the most efficient piece for me kind of deal. So like, it's not like you can just have the pieces like a sheet of paper where all the pieces that are there and the links are listed because it's real hard to get that conveyed into a software program. So did you have like a spreadsheet or like how does that, I mean, I'm sure it's even more involved than that, but I'm just curious as to what that looks like. Yeah, I mean, essentially. So now that the pieces are all deconstructed, we really kind of have a inventory database and then we have the physical stockpile itself too. So yeah, the inventory is literally an itemized list It's in an Excel spreadsheet. We engineers love our Excel spreadsheets so much. (laughs) Near and dear to the heart. But yeah, so basically it's just an itemized list. Every single piece has its own individual piece mark. So every piece has a unique identification. The inventory says what member size that it is, like even the historical member size from, you know, kind of the date of construction. It says the length. It says the weight. We did material testing, so that information is in there as well. And then the inventory also tracks, you know, the project claims. So, you know, what new construction project is claiming this piece of steel? And there's some other kind of other little things we're tracking. But essentially, you have, like, as a structural engineer who might use these pieces, you have the information that you need to truly be able to design with this and, again, verify that, geometrically that piece works for you as well like truly like what is the length and we even went as far to estimate usable length before those pieces came out so we said okay we think this piece sitting in the building is you know 21 feet but once it comes down and once you refabricate it we believe the usable length to be 19 feet you know so we kind of estimated that too as well and so yeah really as a as a designer you can thumb through that catalog and actually pick the literal pieces that you believe you can implement into your design. Very cool. And as you're talking about usable length, one thing that comes to mind is, you know, there's the connections at the ends, bolt holes, whatever that may be, weld plates, whatever it may be, but then usable length, you're able to cut those down since everything is, you know, steel is homogeneous along the length. So you can cut it down and you have a very simple span, full section for what you need it for, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. I think it's also worth mentioning too, with each individual piece, we eventually created cut sheets. So every piece has its own cut sheet that kind of mimics, you know, new construction and kind of 
if you were to use traditional kind of new steel framing pieces. So there's photos of it that kind of show what that piece actually looks like. We try to identify, are there any, you know, is there camber in the piece? Is there sweep? Is there flange tilt? You know, are there penetrations? Is there accessory material? And when I say accessory material, I mean kind of intermediate connections or stiffener plates or Mm -hmm. this project actually had some some somewhat funky detailing throughout. So there was a lot of accessory material along the length. So by creating these cut sheets, we were able to communicate again to the new construction project and ultimately to the new construction fabricator to say, okay, here's what you're actually about to pick up. Like, here's what the piece truly looks like so that they can make sure and vet, like, does that actually work? You know, is there going to be a conflict with new connections that they need to make or new geometry that they need to achieve? So, yeah, again, each individual piece has a unique identifier and then as well has kind of that uh, cut sheet documentation as well. Gotcha. Imagine earning continuing education credits while doing exactly what you're doing right now. Well, you can. Gable Media has revolutionized the way you earn your continuing education credits with a groundbreaking approach. Forget running around town and scouring the internet for credit-worthy courses. Fulfill your CE requirements effortlessly by listening to engaging podcasts just like the one you're listening to now. Our podcasts are designed to educate, entertain, and inspire, all in a user-friendly environment. But wait, there's more. Architects, Gable Media is also approved as an AIA Continuing Education Services provider. Upon completion, we handle everything. From reporting your hours directly to the AIA to storing your certificates in your personal Gable Media profile for your self-reporting needs. So follow the link in the show notes and start earning your credits in the most innovative and entertaining way possible with Gable Media. And that's one thing. So like at KLNA, you guys are the carbon unit, which is you as the director, and then also the design side, the structural engineering design side, but then also the fabrication and the detailing side of things. And I can see like, as you're talking about that, I'm like, oh, so like you're putting together your shop drawings, essentially, when you're going through design, and that's almost like available for the design team and the detailing team. Exactly. Yeah. And we actually, with the new construction project, so with Fire Station 3, we basically delivered a cut sheet package. So again, kind of mimicking a you know normal shop drying package that you would receive. We delivered a package to them of every single piece of steel that they were interested in before they picked it up so that if there was an issue, we could swap a piece out potentially, you know, and they could kind of vet that on there and they could review the pieces both as a structural engineer and then again as the fabricator. And for sure, I definitely called our steel detailing group before we really kind of even created that cut sheet framework to really, you know, kind of vet that with them and, you know, their perspective as steel detailers and steel fabricators. And then, you know, ultimately we really approached this from the perspective of of a structural engineer. Sure. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So where is everything stockpiled? Does the owner have a specified location for that or how does that work? Yeah. So I think what made this really feasible was that there's space on the site. And so again, they kind of have this nine acre site 
the building only covered about maybe a third to a half of the site itself. So the rest of it was like surface parking. You know, we definitely need to get all those pieces off the site eventually prior to really the redevelopment starting. But it it was amazing because we basically had about a two-year window of we can set this deal here and it's not in anyone's way. It was nice because we were able to really lay it out so it's not stacked very tall either. So it really allows it kind of easy access to the individual pieces. And again, if a fabricator is coming to pick up those pieces, it's easy to kind of pull out that pile for them. And so, yeah, it's just kind of existing on the site. And so, you know, there was kind of this process flow on the site of, you know, pulling it down. There was kind of a staging area and then kind of a processing area, again, kind of taking those photos and in measurements and verifying sizes and things to that effect. And then kind of ultimately this like organized stockpile, it's basically on a grid system, which then also is communicated in our inventory. So if someone asks me about, hey, I want to know where A261 is, you know, I can pop into the inventory and give them a really good idea of exactly where that sits on the site. Okay. And so does the city of Boulder or does the owner of the project, do they maintain ownership of all those members too? Because I think there's still like a surplus of three or 400 pieces, right? That will get used for another one of their projects. Is that the intention? Yes, exactly. So the city of Boulder themselves, yes, they own the pieces. You know, again, they own the site, they own the pieces, they own the inventory. We're just managing it on their behalf. The intention is that Pieces will be used in the new development. So we're starting to talk with some of the design teams about that now. The city is also interested in using some of the pieces for like art installations throughout the city or benches, even in their parks and rec department, you know, canopies, things to that effect. I enjoyed, I got a call a couple weeks ago. They're actually going to take a handful of pieces and use them for some of their fire station team training. And I honestly don't know like exactly what they're going to use it for, but there's kind of a lot of like miscellaneous applications throughout the city. But the city is also totally open to the pieces being used on private projects as well, whether they're in the city or very close to Boulder, they're very open to it. Kind of this objective of, illustrating that this is possible, this is feasible, and really showcasing that. They didn't want to hoard that steel and and say no one else can use this. So they're really open to other projects. We have a few projects at KLNA that are entertaining it right now. So a lot of projects are kind of in discussion about, you know, kind of what that process would look like and, and starting to look at the actual inventory itself. What I also love is the city of Boulder is giving this material for free. And so regardless if it's, you know, a city project of their own or it's a private project that has nothing to do with them, they are giving this material at zero, zero cost. And so again, totally for the purpose of, you know, making this successful. And they know that that's a barrier for sure for new construction projects. And so for them to be able to offer that free, that makes it even more of a of a case for new construction projects and makes it even more cost neutral. For Fire Station 3, we actually saved a little bit of money by using the salvage steel versus procuring new steel. So yeah, I guess if you're listening to this podcast and it's 2023 or early 2024, and this sounds interesting to you and you want this deal on your project, like give me a call. We may have pieces for you. (laughs) 
I love that. You know, it just, it makes me think like, how cool would it be if there was a spot where you could go as a designer or as an owner and kind of, you know, shop the steel or shop pieces. And the story of it is cool too. Like it has a sustainability characteristic to it that's very important, but it also has a very interesting story to it too and character that you can bring into the building. And I think that's so cool. But I'm just thinking of like, you know, secondhand clothing when you go to like, you know, a thrift shop, like what if there was a steel thrift shop? <laughs> and like totally, you could yeah. just go shop and find the things that you need for your building or virtually look through a catalog of inventory to determine what would work. How cool would that be? And I feel like you guys are kind of on the forefront of that. Yeah, totally. And, and honestly, that was like really fundamental to like how we approach this. Cause at the very beginning, you know, it was like, well, what, what information does need to be in the inventory? Like what documentation do we need to develop, right? Kind of at one end of the spectrum, you could deconstruct all these pieces and not document any of it, right? And and put it in a really, really clean and nice pile and organize it somewhat by size or length or whatever. Then that requires a new project to engage in that way. And they would have to come to the site and they would have to look at the pieces and they would have to measure them and they would also have to kind of gain this level of comfort of using the steel. And so, you know, I think that's really the value that we brought to this project was our perspective as a structural engineer. We wanted our documentation to facilitate that. So we kind of approached it from if I was a new construction engineer, what information do I need to know and what do I need to know to feel comfortable to even entertain this at all? And so that we felt like was so important that you could basically shop that list. You can look at a catalog and say, okay, this is exactly what I'm getting. Even kind of expectations of like the state of the steel and how much it would be cleaned up and things like that. We we felt like that was the value of the stockpile was someone being able to shop it without even coming to site and for basically the stockpile to kind of take on that effort and that documentation versus every single new project or new engineer who might use this deal, you know, having to kind of go through that effort. Yeah, no, that I was going to ask you about that. And I, I'm so glad that you brought that up. Just the fact that as a structural engineer, like a lot of times the embodied carbon specialist has a different background that is very important as well. But coming at it from a structural engineering perspective, you kind of know what that end goal is or what's necessary from a design and analysis standpoint to be able to back up to the beginning to, like you said, give comfort level to those that are putting together the construction documents for the building. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That was so important. And honestly, I got very grilled by a few engineers who were, you know, we were talking with about, you know, potentially using it on their projects. And I appreciated it, right? Like I appreciated the questions and I felt prepared to answer them, right? Those were things that we had vetted through this process. And again, that we knew we were going to have to answer to even the material testing program that we developed, right? Again, that I think that that would be very difficult for a third party, you know, kind of sustainability consultant to develop it and to really kind of look at it from that structural perspective. And so, again, I think that's the value that we brought to this project, but I also think that's the value that this stockpile has itself is that 
you know, we really can speak to structural capacity, structural integrity, and material properties. Yeah, I love that. And the other thing I'm thinking about as you're talking is that sometimes availability is an issue with new steel pieces too. Maybe it's coming from a different country, you know, like a lot of times there's some long lead times for certain shapes. And when it's already available, that's pretty awesome and means you get it a lot faster too. So yeah, exactly. And one reason too, why this project I think was able to kind of get the final like kick over the line was this was during COVID, right? So this process for us was kind of 2020 through 2023 now. And at that time, material escalation was like pretty extreme. And especially for steel joists, that's why we even entertained recovering the steel joists was the lead time for projects were years, like literally years and where projects would design as steel joists and then have to do a full redesign with lighter white plant shapes because they weren't able to even order steel joists. And so I think that is also kind of what helped make the case again for this project. And I think helped make the case for Fire Station 3. And I think is gonna be kind of more and more true as we move forward. You know, I believe a structural material database, I think will be more successful when it kind of reaches this larger scale where again, an engineer or a project team can truly kind of shop through some type of database and really understand, you know, what they're getting and and be able to pull kind of a variety of materials. I think that would be amazing. Yeah. Think of like Risa where like maybe you're in there or RAM and you're like design it as the most efficient shape. There is no reason why the database in those programs can't also have the inventory log that's available and do the exact same thing. Oh my gosh. Honestly, I hadn't thought about that yet, but I, I totally agree. I think there's so much power in kind of having all of this stuff inventoried and like truly having some type of database for it. I think there's, yeah, there's so much power in it. I just see a lot of possibilities kind of with this going to scale for sure. Yeah. So do you know if anything like this has been done before, Alexis? No. So this was something that I truly had to wrap my head around. And for months, whenever I touched this project, that was just like on my mind where I'm like, I cannot believe that this hasn't been done before. It felt so obvious to me, especially from a sustainability perspective, whereas like, you know, I, I know it's not necessarily easy and I understand why projects haven't taken it on, but it truly blew my mind that nobody had done this. And when I say no one had done this, you know, obviously there's a lot of reuse and recycling in the building industry, but it's typically done with architectural products and not with structural products. So that's kind of a major distinction. And then certainly, you know, there's been projects that have reused structural material or, you know, even building renovations is, you know, an obvious example. There's also projects that will deconstruct a project and then kind of rebuild with some of those materials. But truly like at this scale and these type of structural members And when I say that, I mean using these structural pieces for a commercial application and kind of really making them work structurally. That hasn't been done before. There are a few like reuse databases that are coming online in North America, all for reuse, Reaply, Building Ease. So there's some really amazing progress in this space. But again, most of it truly is focused on architectural products. So that that's kind of a major distinction for this project. 
Very cool. Well, and I think it's the comfort level with with the material for the design engineer and for the owner, right? So like the fact that you have the database and all the things you were talking about of like, oh, you know, maybe it's like out of plumb a little bit or off axis a little bit here, or it's got these plates here, like having all of that available and obviously knowing what the steel grade is. All of those things are what kind of gets that comfort level with the designer and the owner in check. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, so true. I think a lot of designers and a lot of developers would be open to this idea for sure. But I think there's a huge difference between being interested in it and wanting to make the case for it versus like actually going through with it. And so I think all of those pieces and parts were kind of necessary to to see this through. Yeah. So I want to take you back to the beginning of the project. Like when you were first introduced to it, did you know that it was going to be like trudging through new territory or kind of what were your thoughts at the initial onset? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I was kind of thrilled the whole time. I I knew it was a special opportunity, both for myself and for Team Carbon and for KLNA, but I really didn't understand what that meant. And I really didn't understand that we were, that we were doing this for the first time. And I didn't understand that there wasn't precedence. You know, I was thinking like, okay, I'm going to do this deep dive Google search and I'm going to find examples and I'm going to find framework around how people developed material testing requirements and things to that effect. And, and there just wasn't that. And so, and especially too, when we started at the beginning, you know, again, we were originally pulled on for LCA scope, life cycle assessment, not for stockpiling. So us in 2020 had no idea that this is where this was going to head and that our role would be what it was. And so, you know, again, we were kind of along for the ride with city of Boulder. And I think we all just stayed you know, very open and and enthusiastic and optimistic about doing this. And so I think we all said yes enough times. And I think we all encouraged each other enough that we made it happen, which is like so exciting. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's still truly like mind blowing to me that we are, you know, one of the first, if not the first to really execute this. Awesome. So you think you'll use it in other projects then? Like, are you starting to see other opportunities come up for something like this? We are talking with a developer right now. They have kind of a similar site, kind of similar project timeline where it does look like it looks very feasible. I think for that project, again, we really have to justify an end use. So I think it it's very hard for a developer to make the case where it's like, okay, I'm going to deconstruct and stockpile all this material but then what am I going to do with it, right? Like they, we really have to justify an end use. So whether that's their own projects and new construction or new developments they're making, or we have to connect the dots with another new construction project. But yeah, I feel confident that, you know, maybe in the next two years, I think Team Carbon will be involved in another stockpile endeavor. You know, we're also talking with the city of Boulder of the objective is circular economy, and they really wanted to show that this was feasible. And so we're hoping that the conclusion of this project and, you know, looking at costs and schedule and embody carbon savings and things like that, we are hoping that we can make the case with the city of Boulder that they will continue to do this and potentially create a long-term stockpile for themselves. So kind of any project that is being deconstructed in the city could add into the stockpile and new construction projects can pull from the stockpile. So again, it becomes kind of this long-term thing. 
Another idea that that I love and that the city of Boulder is also very interested in is what if another municipality did the same thing? And then you can start to exchange databases with one another and then you essentially you have you know, double the inventory, you have double the stockpile, and you can really start to go at scale with that and kind of interchange again with another municipality. Which makes complete sense because the more inventory, the more flexibility there is, the more opportunity to use a large portion of reused material because no one wants to just pull a couple of pieces like it's not worth the effort, right? Like, but if you can do most of the structural members as reused pieces, then it starts to make sense. Exactly. Yes, exactly. So at this point in time, looking back at the Boulder Community Hospital Project, what is like the most fascinating thing or what are your thoughts at this point in time? Yeah. So, you know, honestly, I don't know if this is necessarily fascinating, but the part that I appreciated the most about this project was like the collaboration across all of the entities involved. So no one individual or individual company was the reason for the success. It was truly, you know, the city of Boulder, it was Kalanay as a stockpile manager, Amoresco as the GC, and CCC, Colorado Cleanup Corporation, as the actual deconstruction contractor, right? Like everyone participated in the process. So although we managed it, every time we created a new document or a new requirement or a new process that was vetted with everyone, even the fabricator for the new construction project. And so everyone kind of had input in the process. I think everybody's perspective and kind of unique expertise brought value to that. And honestly, it was just like a fun time. I really enjoyed working very closely with the contractors on site. And again, it wasn't like one part was more important than the other. It was it was critically important that they, you know, took it down gently and they didn't damage the pieces and they did an amazing job and they did it extremely fast. And then it was equally important that the people processing the actual pieces on the site and measuring them and documenting them and organizing them, that was critically important, right? And then us developing the process and and kind of all the final documentation on the back end, like that's important as well. And so I really loved that and I loved watching to KLNA's expertise in kind of combination of sustainability and structural engineering and, and construction really kind of come to fruition. And I think we all like integrated nicely. And that was just kind of always on my mind. I, I really enjoyed that part of it. Yeah, no, I love that. And I love that everyone that you described. So, you know, the owner, the deconstruction contractor, yourself, everyone else involved at KLNA, like maybe it was the first time, but now it's going to be the second time. Like it's, you know, like that framework is already there. Like the path has already been forged. So it'll just be easier the next time, which is very exciting. Okay, so what would be like your advice for structural engineers that maybe aren't well-versed in embodied carbon? What would be your advice for just kind of day-to-day things that we can do to have an impact on sustainability and on lowering carbon emissions? Yeah, I mean, I could talk about this endlessly. This could be its own (laughs) podcast episode. But I like to think about embodied carbon reductions kind of in two ways. I like to think about it as design strategies and then also material strategies. So 
I think that it's important we get involved as early in the process as possible so that we have kind of the most influence on embodied carbon and the layout of the building and the system selection and things to that effect. So I think that's really fundamental, but I think it's really important that engineers stay focused on design efficiencies, right? So being a really good technical engineer and creative engineer is so, so important because embodied carbon is all about material specs or like the materials you specify, and it's all about material volumes. Being really, really efficient in your designs is very helpful to embodied carbon. So I think that's kind of like step one and and not necessarily feeling like you need to do all this crazy stuff or you needed to learn all these new things. It's really be a really, really good engineer is going to be my like number one advice. And then, you know, I think kind of in this context, rethinking how we design in the first place. So kind of rethinking, should we even deconstruct in the first place, right? Can we renovate? Can we reuse materials? And then thinking through, if you are designing for new construction, think about the end of life. In 50 to 100 years from now, we are not going to be demolishing buildings the way that we are now. Like from a climate change perspective, we can't do that. And so we need to set ourselves up for success now and design for deconstruction. So things I like to think about or or some more like obvious ones are thinking through, should we use welded or bolted connections? Should we even design with composite steel framing? Like, should we interlock those materials in that way? And then even just thinking about how you interface any of your materials or any of your systems. Is it easy to construct? Is it easy to deconstruct? And then thinking through too, can we set up physical marking of those pieces and material passports for our new construction projects, again, to set them up for success at end of life. And then, you know, as far as the materials themselves go, you know, I'm a believer that every single project can reduce embodied carbon. I like to think that every project could reduce their embodied carbon by 20%. I, I truly, truly believe that. I don't think it's incredibly aggressive. I think it's if the design team slows down, focuses on it, thinks about it, kind of retailers some of their their layouts and material specs, you can get a 20% reduction. So every major material category as of now has reduction opportunities. And so again, I think it's important that we as engineers kind of own those different things. So concrete and steel and wood and really understand, you know, how do you procure low embodied carbon materials? There's a lot of different avenues right now available to us today without extreme innovation to reduce your embodied carbon impact. Some really helpful resources that are my go-tos that I give to anybody is SE2050. Check out that website. Check out Architecture2030 website as well, which was kind of a precursor to SE2050. And then Carbon Leadership Forum. Those three websites will get you kind of your base knowledge and and really get you started. And yeah, we'll just be super helpful. You can kind of deep dive into any topic you're interested in there. Awesome. We will put that in the show notes too. So listeners can go directly to those sites. So, but like, as you're talking too, like reducing volume means lower costs for the owner as well. So what a great, I guess, service that we can provide for these projects too, by being efficient. We're not only helping the environment, our long-term success here on this planet, but we are also helping save the client some money too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) 
So if you could give the Boulder Community Hospital project, deconstruction project, a theme song, what would it be? I'm going to go with the Indiana Jones theme song, Adventurous. And frankly, I've just been watching those movies recently, so it's been <laughs> on my mind. But yeah, that's my, that's my song. I love it. I feel like there needs to be a video game that is this project being deconstructed by Indiana yeah. Jones. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. That would be amazing. <laughs> so what do you do to recharge? Like, what do you do in your off time when you're not working? Yeah, I'm a true Coloradan. So I love to be outdoors. If I'm outdoors, I'm happy. I really love to camp. I dirt bike, snowboard. I like just walking through the woods. Honestly, it's so fun. And then I would say my other one, you know, when I'm in the city is I really love to get ice cream with friends. Love it. Well, and I think that ties into what you do as a profession too, you know, like protecting the environment and like the fact that you grew up in Colorado. So like you're long-term invested into your community and making sure that all of those natural resources are still available to use and enjoy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's another reason why this project felt so special to me because it, it was in my home state and I, you know, I didn't grow up in Boulder, but the fact that a city in Colorado was really taking that on just felt so, so special to me. And the fact that I, I could myself contribute to that was super special. And, you know, like you said, just being connected with nature and experiencing that, you know, I think it's just so important that we protect it and, and respect it. And so, yeah, kind of all, all comes together in that way. So awesome. Well, Alexis, this has been amazing. I have learned so much and I do really feel like you are on the precipice of like doing something great. Like obviously it's great already, but I think this is just at the very forefront of what it could be and it's only going to explode from here. And it's very exciting to have this conversation with you at this kind of start of something big. So thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. And yeah, I super appreciate the opportunity to kind of spread the word. You know, another important thing for us and for Boulder was that we did share all of this information with the industry, right? We're not trying to protect it. We don't feel like it belongs to us, right? Like, we feel like we're doing this on behalf of the industry and, and we want to progress that. And so yeah, I hope that this episode, you know, encourages or inspires someone else to kind of take on this effort. And yeah, we're, we're happy to give advice at any time. So thank you again. Awesome. Yes. Thanks so much for being here. Great talk and conversation. Thanks. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Unstruct and know someone else who would, please share it with them. And if you enjoy the work that I'm doing here in general, I would really appreciate your rating and review on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to help others find the show. Speaking of finding shows, Unstruct is part of the Gable Media Network, a place where you can find even more content like this. To see the catalog of shows focused on our built environment, visit gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Lastly, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe before you go so that you don't miss the next story from within the walls and how they stand today. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. 
You got yeah. anything? I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.